heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. The most remarkable thing about doing these Q and A's is the amount of questions that are coming into the network, and and just begging to be heard and get some honest answers. That is the purpose of these Q and A's, and so I welcome you in, my friends, to the Voice of a Nation, uh, as we begin to uh, get into some of these questions with Dr. Peter McCullough. Uh, let me tell you first a little background. Dr. McCullough is an academic internist, a cardiologist, and epidemiologist from Dallas, Texas. He's considered among the world's top experts on COVID-19 pandemic response. Uh, you know, his show, The McCullough Report, plays on the network here, as well as all his articles and write-ins. It's a lot of information. One of the things we're getting a lot of requests for is to get these into resource libraries, which we are moving fast to do. Uh, we did publish those studies you were asking for last week, and that has been uh, well-researched and read uh, on the platform as well. But if you go to americaroutloud.com and go onto our team, you'll find Dr. Peter McCullough there, or The McCullough Report under shows and you'll get a lot of information. We're going to get right to it now because there are a lot of questions. And I want to start with this very interesting message that came in from Pam. And she says this, thank you so much for your hard work exposing the COVID atrocities. You truly are amazing and wonderful because of your heart and soul actions, energy and care for the human race. God bless you. I hold you in my prayers now. May we all work together to make things better. Love, Pam. Dr. McCullough, isn't that quite a remark to start with? It's heartwarming and gratifying to learn that we're making such a big impact, Malcolm, and it's a, a real pleasure to be back on the show. Yeah, all right. Let's get one from Jennifer here, and she says, uh, this is a fabulous, informative discussion, and I look forward to it every week. Please keep it up and keep them coming. I'm very interested in getting a T-detect test for my husband, who continues to have negative antibody tests, despite living in-house with two separate family members who did not isolate. My concern is that the T-detect test indicates they work in partnership with Microsoft and use their AI technology. Can you please offer any reassurances that Microsoft is not going to use our information for any sinister purposes. In today's world, you can see why folks might not want to trust their DNA in the hands of this type of company. I don't know about um, how much of the DNA information is given away with the consent form. So look at it pretty carefully. It's all done online uh, through T-Detect test. You go to T-Detect, so put it in your browser and you'll get there and follow the disclaimers. You may have an opportunity to uncheck boxes that release information of your DNA to third parties. The test is reliable. It looks for next generation sequencing patterns in the chromosomes in your T cells to indicate if you, the virus has been seen by the body and whether or not the T cells have, um, have uh, formed uh, cell surface receptors that would recognize the virus the second time around. So the test does have a very strong positive predictive value. Uh, it can be very helpful when the antibodies are negative. We know that 15% of people who've had COVID-19 uh, do not get an antibody response that's strong enough to turn positive on the major platforms, Abbott, Roche, uh, Quest, 
lab corps and orthoclinical diagnostics, it's hard to hit a positive antibody response. The final comment I'm saying is that we always see in a household of people with COVID-19, we always see one or two people who don't get COVID-19. And it's either because they have natural immunity from other coronaviruses, or they have a very good microbiome, and they're able to fight off the virus without clinically getting infected. You know, we, we all are moving so fast these days, we don't read those disclaimers on just about anything, but it's a good point that, that you bring up that we should take a look at that, especially in this kind of a thing. So perhaps that was a good thought to, to put out there. Uh, Ellie uh, says, I'm trying to save my husband's life. Please help me. I would like to be able to ask Dr. McCullough, what can be done to keep my husband from being put on a ventilator? He has maxed out on oxygen tank. The doctor at the hospital says he's doing all he can. I'm not sure that that's true. My husband was diagnosed with COVID pneumonia. He was already asymptomatic, hasn't gotten any shots. They put him on antibiotics, remdesivir, a mixture of other stuff, uh, and, and anti-inflammatory drugs. My husband is fighting for his life. I asked for his paper, what they've done. It was not received well. At this point, I'm trying to find help. So what else can be done or should be done? I don't know how to get in touch with the doctor, perhaps via email. I'm not asking for him to be my husband's doctor, speaking of you, but an advocate as to what else I can do for him. God bless you. At any given time, we have over 100,000 Americans in the hospital. So these scenarios play out every day. Many people do reach out to me, and I want them to understand that I'm primarily an outpatient doctor. Uh, I manage, uh, and I feel I'm an expert in managing outpatients with COVID-19. But once patients go in the hospital, the hospitals commonly follow the National Institutes of Health and the Infectious Disease Society of America protocols, which are fairly minimal, and they do involve remdesivir, and then a low-dose steroid called Decadron. Uh, the most important concept I want everyone to understand is when someone's in the hospital and the oxygen levels are low, there's a low oxygen saturation, that's due to blood clotting, it's due to microthrombosis in the lungs. So one of the most important categories of drugs to receive in the hospital are blood thinners, most commonly full-dose Lovenox or uh, anoxaparin, one milligram per kilogram subcutaneous every 12 hours, and then full-dose aspirin, 325. Our Italian colleagues use about triple that dose of aspirin in their protocols. We know it takes a lot of aspirin to thin the blood in a patient with COVID-19. Um, I'm unable to uh, perform second opinions of all these 100,000 patients in the hospital. I simply can't do it. I'm not expert enough to do it. However, we do have uh, an organization of critical care specialists called the Frontline Critical Care Consortium. Frontline Critical Care Consortium. I encourage you to visit their website. They are the inpatient treatment experts, flccc.net. Uh, Rachel says, my friend's father is in the hospital with COVID pneumonia, same thing. She said he had COVID for three weeks and just kept getting worse. They say it's too late for the monoclonal antibodies treatment. They're giving him, and am I, am I saying this right, baricinitinib? Yes, that's a, a drug that's a, a specialized uh, immunomodulator medication. And they may use that in another drug called tozolizumab. They may influence the immune system in a favorable way. But again, the, the most common drug category that's missed on inpatients is full-dose anticoagulation with um, anoxaparin. I give the dose one milligram per kilogram every 12 hours full-dose aspirin or higher, 325 milligrams a day. Those are the most important missed categories of drugs. I haven't been too impressed with baricinitib or with uh, tozolizumab on inpatient outcomes. Question from S. Stephania. 
my husband, who has served 20 years in the army, is making the choice to leave instead of getting the poisonous jab. He is a major working in Fort Hood, Texas. He was close to the retirement where he could receive a pension, but is now at a crossroads with the mandates. I wanted to see if you or someone in your circle can help him and those who do not want this experimental jab fighting against this criminal mandate. We believe we need to resist, but if my husband Troy stays in the military, does not get the jab, he can face court-martial. What do you say to someone like this? There are multiple legal actions right now occurring within the military. So Uh, This individual should check with um, certain lines of legal authority within the military. There's multiple legal actions to uh, stop this forced vaccination on the military. There are also uh, letters from uh, the Senate and the House. Uh, One should look at those. They're available for public comment. Um, But my understanding is um, the the approach is to, to ride this down to the very end and then force the military to do something. If they are threatening a dishonorable discharge, they're gonna have to try to attempt to do a dishonorable discharge. And that's the point at which one can fight that uh, through legal means. Uh, This is a giant game of chicken. And uh, many feel that uh, this is an attempt to force people into early retirement. This is a way of forcing people out of the workforce before they get full credit for their retirement. And so the idea is take it all the way to the end. Okay. Alex says, my name is Dane, and I was wondering if azithromycin can treat the COVID-19 infection in the heart and blood. I've already taken Regeneron, Ivermectin, and currently I'm taking hydroxychloroquine uh, uh, and uh, doxycycline for this heart infection uh, causing me myocarditis. Wow. Now, the COVID-19 can cause a form of myocarditis. It's really more of a case of cardiac injury that's self-limited. At that um, level, azithromycin doesn't have any role since uh, doxycycline is already used as the second intracellular anti-infective. Probably the single greatest uh, uh, sets of drugs that make an influence here are prednisone over a longer course, and then an important drug that we use for other forms of myopericarditis called colchicine. So look for prednisone and colchicine in this scenario. All right, Rebecca says, I would like to leave a question for Dr. McCullough for the next Q&A. If the results of a T-cell test show what I do, in fact, have a T-cells in my body after recovering from COVID, is there any chance of me unknowingly being a carrier of COVID and giving it to my unvaccinated elderly parents? Am I guaranteed lifetime immunity to COVID and all variants if I have the T-cells? Will the T-cells level ever diminish over time? The T-cell detect test, which we uh, handled in an earlier question, is uh, done by next generation sequencing. And to my knowledge, represents a permanent change in the chromosomes. That means that one has had a significant prior exposure and by a uh, inference that this is robust, complete and durable immunity, uh, that there's no opportunity of spreading it to a loved one. Remember, you only can spread COVID-19 to somebody else when you're sick yourself with a fever and nasal congestion. So as long as you feel well, there's no chance of spread to others. And the T-detect test, as far as we know, should be permanent. Okay, Dale says, I have a question in regards to early treatment for COVID-19. In the treatment, he has the patient taking 325 milligrams of aspirin for a length of time to thin the blood. However, I have a problem with that and that I cannot tolerate the aspirin at all. My stomach's just too sensitive. Do you have any other ideas uh, instead of this, uh, the aspirin? Any thoughts, sir? Stomach sensitivity is 
uh, the leading limitation of aspirin. In fact, it can be worse than that. Aspirin can directly cause gastrointestinal bleeding. So when there's stomach sensitivity, individuals should take that seriously. One of the important adjunctive drugs that we can use in treating COVID-19 is famotidine, otherwise known as over-the-counter Pepsid. So I would advise in this case, uh, Pepsid or over-the-counter famotidine, 80 milligrams a day, and then reduce the aspirin to a baby aspirin, 81 milligrams a day. If that still isn't tolerated, then back it off to 81 milligrams every other day. All right. Uh, Lori says, I am a 30 one-year-old nurse. I work in home health care. We've not been mandated to receive the vaccine yet. We've been informed it will be soon to come. Currently, I do not want the vaccine. I started vitamin C, D3, and zinc very early. I've been exposed to a plethora of times, and I'm thankful that I've not received it. Uh, I use uh, dilute betadine nasal swabs twice a day. My own conclusion is proactive treatment works. I am seeing very sick people in my practice that are not getting any complete medication regimen to help them recover. Very seldom do I see ZPAC uh, at all. I am not seeing anticoagulant therapy or full steroidal use. I feel helpless. So here's someone in the medical field, Dr. McCullough, there, and, I, and I get some of these sometimes where they just feel helpless. That's what Lori says here. Other nurses have been reported to the nursing board and are fighting for their licenses if physicians were asked for, if they asked them for uh, physicians for additional medications. So the nurses feel like they're in the middle of this war is what they're saying. And she's uh, asking any advice, any words of wisdom for the medical field? You know, this is a difficult one. I agree. I think the nurses have a more clear vision of what's going on than many of the rank and fail doctors. We estimate there's about 500 doctors trying to treat the whole country now. We've got a million doctors sitting on the sideline and half a million nurse practitioners or PAs. Try to find the doctors in your area that are actually treating COVID-19 or maybe within your center. Do it by word of mouth or go to the AAPS online uh, 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 org. Uh, center and download the uh, roster of treating doctors in the United States, aapsonline.org, physician roster of treating physicians, and then try to align with them because you're right, patients are being undertreated. What we've learned with COVID-19 is patients need a lot of medicinal support to get through the illness and not end up on the ventilator or with permanent damage to their bodies. Exactly. Uh, um, Donna says, uh, been listening to you for months now. I got COVID in early July and recovered on my own. She's 63. Since having it, I have experienced some definite GI issues. Have you any information, studies, et cetera, that show how long the virus remains in your body? What protocols to do to get rid of it completely? Does it lie dormant like some viruses and then reappear? I'm healthy, do plenty of supplements and probiotics, eat healthy, just feel like this may not be completely gone. Of course, it takes a long time to get over this, Dr. McCulloch, correct? That's correct. In a recent paper in preprint and also presented at the COVID-19 International Summit in Rome last week by Dr. Bruce Patterson showed that the spike protein in the respiratory infection is recoverable in human monocytes over a year later after the illness, meaning that the virus must lay down a ton of spike protein that damages the body and sickens the body over the course of a year, and that our cells spend about a year trying to clear this stuff out of our body. And it's not surprising to me that the GI tract could be affected. Uh, We know that the microbiome uh, basically interfaces with the infection. A healthy microbiome can fight off the infection. However, an overwhelming infection can mess up the microbiome and people can have either um, abdominal pain, bloating, 
uh, diarrhea or constipation. So one of the first steps is to restore the microbiome. Uh, one of the handiest things to do is get Activia yogurt. Activia yogurt helps restore the microbiome. One of the things that I found helpful for um, diarrhea, and that's prolonged diarrhea. Diarrhea is defined as more than five, four, four bowel movements a day that's watery and uncomfortable, more than four a day. Then one of the go-to drugs beyond using uh, Imodium AD is to use prescription Cosevamilab or Wellcal. Cosevamilab or Wellcal. Believe it or not, it's a cholesterol-lowering drug. It's a bile acid binding resin, but it works wonderfully for diarrhea. And so um, we can use that at 625 milligrams twice a day. You'll need a prescription for that. All right. Shari is asking, do you have uh, copies of reports written that state pregnant and nursing mothers should not take the vaccine? So this is something we've touched on before, but pregnant and nursing mothers should not take the vaccine. Do we have any reports or anything on that? We have a published report indicating that there's not enough data to allow uh, vaccination of pregnant women. And that's published on trial site news. So if you look up trial site news, and search under McCullough pregnancy, you'll find it. Uh, and that is in response to a New England Journal of Medicine uh, article, the only article that exists on vaccinating pregnant women, which gave some confusing statistics, particularly in the first trimester. And some felt that the rates of abortion could be as high as 83% in the first trimester. Others felt the rates were 12%. And that's quite a, a difference because we simply didn't have a good window of data in that time period. The authors in the New England Journal of Medicine finally published a follow-up paper acknowledging that they simply don't know about the outcomes in pregnancy. And so they fell along the lines of our trial site news uh, opinion piece on this. Uh, we believe that in, uh, these products in pregnancy are considered pregnancy category X, meaning that the vaccines have a dangerous mechanism of action, just like a dangerous drug, and we should not use it in pregnancy until we know it's safe. This is completely uh, at odds with the American Association of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which is advising the COVID-19 vaccine in pregnant women, despite having any assurances on safety. I'll give you one final piece of information that's reassuring. Recently, Pinellas and colleagues published in Annals of Internal Medicine, a paper demonstrating that uh, COVID-19 in pregnant women has a lower risk of mortality and serious outcomes mm -hmm. compared to non-pregnant women. So pregnant women are the least of our concerns. Uh, if there are severe symptoms, we can treat uh, COVID-19 in pregnancy with hydroxychloroquine, which is safe and effective in pregnant women with uh, inhaled budesonide, oral prednisone, oral aspirin, azithromycin, even heparin if needed. All right, Lori says, I've been getting ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine prescriptions filled at a local pharmacy in Albuquerque for almost a year. Yesterday, I went to that pharmacy and tried to fill it. However, they refused. I tried three of the places in town as well and called two pharmacies in Dallas. They were extremely rude. She's saying, what should I do to fill it? Uh, the uh, prescriptions. Well, I apologize on behalf of the Texas pharmacies. Texas is known for a lot of hospitality and good people here. No one should ever be rude. There is a real um, pharmacy backlash on dispensing ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. They're using all different types of methods to try to block delivery to patients. I think at this point in time, I'm advising uh, people in general to really shift to dilute povidone iodine. Uh, that is the betadine, very dilute, just a few drops in a glass of water, uh, gargle, uh, swish, and spit that out. Follow that up with a gargling of uh, Listerine or Scope and, sprint and, and uh, spit it out. 
and then spray some of the betadine solution up in the nose and snort it out. Do that twice a day. Honestly, that's uh, in a very good study by Chowdhury and colleagues that is highly protective. Uh, and I think using that, there's relatively little role for the ivermectin hydroxychloroquine. I, I would advise save what you have uh, because if the real infection comes, you wanna make sure that your drug cabinet is ready to go. Okay, I came across a report, Kathy says, from the New Physicians Alliance that stated Dr. McCullough has a list of doctors in the United States that are treating patients with a preventive therapy of ivermectin and the info to contact. I can't find this on America Out Loud. Can you please direct me to those resources and if they have telehealth in case they are not in my state of Nebraska? The list of treating doctors is at the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons website, aapsonline.org. Download the the treating physicians directory, it's about 500 doctors. Additionally, in the AAPS online home treatment guide, as well as in the Truth for Health home treatment guide, there is a listing of telemedicine services. There's about four national telemedicine services and 15 regional services. Some of the national ones you may know about include myfreedoctor.com, speakwithanmd.com, frontlinemds.com, and America Frontline Doctors. Uh, additionally, there is a network of treating doctors available through the Frontline Critical Care Consortium, flcc.net. Okay, and it's the same question Evelyn asked, where can she where's the physician directory posted? So uh, both to Evelyn and many others and Kathy, we'll get links up on uh, the platform uh, directly to that online home treatment guide with AAPS, uh, certainly friends of ours, and we'll get those links in there so you can readily find them on our network as well. Ariola asks, uh, hello, first of all, thank you for what you do. I am in Albania and follow you. Do you have a list of international doctors that follow the protocols you recommend? There's also a listing of international doctors by country, and we'll provide the link to that. I'll have to search for that, but I, I have seen that listing. It's not as robust as we'd like to see, but I know it exists. Okay, very cool. But there is a list of that, huh? Very cool. Okay. Stephen says, uh, yesterday I tested positive for COVID. They sent me home with quarantine instructions and that was it. I just listened to a talk from Dr. McCullough. He mentioned contact and a telehealth telemedicine service provided. I, I'd like to start his treatment protocol and don't know who to trust. Um, could you please provide a few contacts? But then again, that comes back to just what we're talking about, doesn't it? Yeah, that was the last question we just answered and we'll get those telemedicine links up there. All right, this one is from Melody. She says, I have a question I really need an answer very soon. My son is a Marine reservist in Oklahoma. The military is mandating vaccines by November. If my son were to take ivermectin before and after for a time, would that help stop the chance of adverse side effects from the Myrna va vaccine? This is a common question. People are capitulating with the vaccine and then they're trying to mitigate the side effects. And I can tell you right now, I, I don't think there's any way to really mitigate the side effects of these vaccines. When they, when they take off in the human body, we can't seem to stop them. And so at this point in time, the best way to stay safe is simply say no to the vaccines and find another pathway forward. Many are looking at, at taking this down to the wire and hoping that the House or the Senate or some oversight panel steps in and shuts down the, the vaccine program. Nobody in the military wants the vaccines. And I know there's tremendous resistance. The best advice is hold the line. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tammy says, please, we need to get a hold of Dr. McCullough about ivermectin. We live in Wyoming and want to be able to use it as a prophylactic uh, for SARS-CoV-19. You could say we are begging for help. We will not be treated with this period in Wyoming uh, if we get the China virus. My niece in Phoenix was on death's door for 10 days because they would not refuse to treat her with ivermectin, only remdesivir. Um, is, is what the hospitals are using. Uh, she refuses the COVID-19 vax. We will not take it ever. We know ivermectin will prevent the virus. Please help. Again, these are people that are just pleading. They don't want the vaccine. They know the hospitals are giving remdesivir, uh, but there's not much more we can tell folks like this, is there? The main thing is to keep re reiterating the really powerful effects of uh, using dilute povidone iodine uh, that dilute solution, just a few drops in a glass of water, swish and gargle and spit, spray it up your nose, snort it out twice a day is very effective. If one was to come into contact with someone COVID-19, you can do that four times a day. I learned that from anti-infective dentists interviewed on America Out Loud, the McCullough Report, Paul Gossett. And Paul does that when he comes in contact with a patient, he's a dentist who has COVID, he'll actually do it for day. If you're iodine sensitive, the next in line is hydrogen peroxide. Again, very dilute. Uh, next in line after that is hypochlorite. Believe it or not, a couple of drops of household bleach in a glass of water is very effective. One thing important to mention at this point is that, uh, remember, these answers and these uh, to all of these questions are for educational purposes only. Uh, we cannot really, we don't know each specific situation and we can't give medical advice out. So it's important to remind you, this is for educational purposes. You, you really need to get the proper advice from your own doctors and your own personal situations that require that. Uh, so I want to mention that to you. As well, I want to remind you again, HealthyCell.com is our sponsor here on the show. And, uh, you know, this is a product. It's a gel form product that I've been taking for over three and a half years. I highly recommend it. Uh, the, the thing about a gel form versus pills, it's a get, it gets into your body quickly. It's absorbed. Your body absorbs that. And so you get the impact of that versus the old vitamins uh, that really haven't been updated since the early 1930s. Uh, so this is a new way of uh, uh, helping your immune system out, actually. They have a whole host of products at Healthy Cell. They have REM sleep that help you sleep at night, focus, helps you think better, and uh, an immune super boost, which has got the echinacea, the zinc, the A, the D, a lot of the things that we're using now to uh, fight COVID, in fact, are in there. All those products, our listeners get 20% off your first order there. Uh, just go to HealthyCell.com forward slash out loud or a Click the banner ad back at America Out Loud and you're entitled to that discount. And uh, I highly recommend it. It's a great product. And so check that out there, friends. We're going to take a pause here. We'll be back with Dr. Peter McCullough and more questions on The Voice of the Nation. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. You know, Healthy Cell is a terrific lineup of products. They have products that are pill-free, gel pack vitamins, uh, looking for better sleep, focus, and energy. Check out Healthy Cell, the leading innovator in nutritional supplements for cell health. Healthy Cell has a product that helps REM sleep, helps you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep supplement the only sleep supplement that's designed to support all stages of sleep. And boy, is it needed now during all the stress 
of the COVID-19 pandemic. So go to HealthyCell.com and use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any product from Healthy Cell. I use them every day. I believe in them, and you should too. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. You'll find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to the Voice of a Nation. It is Malcolm Out Loud here, yours truly. We're speaking with Dr. Peter McCullough here and uh, really going through a lot of the questions that you all have out there and trying to get these answers out to everybody. This one uh, from Amanda. Uh, She says, my mother who has a plethora of undiagnosed issues right now is debating on getting the COVID vaccine. She is a smoker in her 50s and right now her main problem uh, is the COPD. She has an appointment with a pulmonologist coming up, but I worry about the side effects of the vaccine for her. If she has pre-existing blood clots and potentially COPD, would the risk outweigh the benefit? What would you suggest or think about this? Uh, she said, I told her to at least get diagnosed first and also to get an antibody test is what she's saying to her mom to find out if she already has immunity before even deciding on a vaccine. Thank you, Malcolm and Dr. McCullough for making these podcast Q&As available. Uh, they're so informative. We desperately need to hear. God bless you both. What do you say to Amanda there? Well, I'll take the last part first, and that is individuals um, who have not had a clear cut illness that like COVID-19, and we go later on and try to check antibodies or T-detect tests, I've been very disappointed. I think the vast majority of people, um, believe me, you don't miss COVID-19. When you get it, you're sick, you're not going to miss it. So a lot of people are looking for good luck and saying, maybe I have antibodies or a T-detect test. Outside of a young college kid, I wouldn't go looking for it. The vast majority of people that age, if they haven't been really sick with COVID-19, you're not gonna find much on antibodies or T-detect testing. Now in the clinical trials where the vaccines look pretty good, the majority of people had no medical problems. 
So people with advanced lung disease, blood clots, they, were, they weren't in the clinical trials. 60% of people had absolutely no medical problems whatsoever. So that's our concern is someone with medical problems where you think they could benefit from a vaccine. In fact, they actually are harmed with blood clots and all the different safety events that we see with the COVID-19 vaccines. The other final problem is now in September of 2021, 99% of all the infections in the United States are Delta. And the current sets of vaccines don't cover the Delta variant. So it's so disappointing to have uh, somebody go through the risks of the vaccine and then turn around and get COVID-19. I have many people like that in my practice. All right. Joanne is from Ontario, Canada. She says she's a big fan. Unfortunately, her workplace is mandated that they take the COVID vaccine. Pfizer or Moderna is in her area available, she says. Uh, she's being threatened with dismissal. Uh, and uh, however, what she's asking here now, she's wondering if you have looked into anything people can take prior and after vaccination to neutralize the spike protein and diminish its ability to bind to ACE2 receptors. What do you say to that? This is the same as what we've tackled previously, this idea of you know, can we give an antidote and get through this clinical hazard of taking the vaccine? I really don't see any way out of this. The only way to stay healthy and not be injured by the vaccine is simply don't take the vaccine at all. We do know that these vaccine mandates have no legal standing, uh, that, we, that the vaccines are investigational, and that no human being can be forced into a vaccine or have their employment threatened. So the advice is you carry it out to the very end. This is a big game of chicken. They want to see who's going to back down first who can be forced out of their job by voluntarily resigning. You're advised to not take the vaccine, don't voluntarily resign, and take it down to the very end. If they try to fire you, then you can dispute that as an unlawful termination. All right. This next one is really fascinating from Marianne. And uh, I haven't seen many like this. She says, is it possible... Dr. McCullough, that the motive behind this inexplicable push to vaccinate every adult in child is driven by the need to eliminate the control group. The people in charge are far along to turn back and then large numbers of vaccinated people start to die or become disabled. A healthy control group will expose their guilt. If there is no control group, they can blame the death, destruction, a new variant or something. But the reason I even bring this up, Dr. McCullough, I want people to hear this. People are so in desperation with this being forced to vaccination, what's going on through the news cycle, that they're really starting to get to points like this, talking about a control group or who's being the force of this forced vaccination vaccination and people dying. Uh, what do we say to people like this? A lot of stories like this out there like this. Well, the spirit of the question gets to what's called comparative outcomes. In the end, who's going to do better? Those who are free of the vaccine or those who have taken the vaccine? Hmm. Well, it's pretty clear if someone's had COVID-19 and they don't take the vaccine, then they'll have the best outcome because they've had COVID-19 and survived it can't get COVID-19 a second and third time, and the vaccine can only offer harm. So the winner is really the COVID-recovered individuals who don't take the vaccine. Now, if someone truly is susceptible to COVID, the question is, um, if they take the vaccine or don't take the vaccine, how are the comparative outcomes? You know, and analyses have been done. There's been multiple of these uh, analyses about risks and benefits going forward. It's really hard to find in the era of Delta a benefit taking the vaccine. When we look at every age group, there's still a greater chance of poor outcomes in those who take the vaccine. So for comparative outcomes, uh, one would choose the idea of not taking the vaccine and just seeking early treatment. 
if COVID-19 does come knocking at their door. Robin says, thank you for the work you're doing to save lives and share information regarding early COVID treatment. Our family of seven had COVID in August. We followed protocols shared by you. And while my husband and I were hit hard, we are grateful to have recovered at home. So there's a success story there. However, our five-year-old developed MISC4 weeks later. We were fortunate to catch it and treat it early and spend just four days in a pediatric hospital wing. She will require follow-up with a cardiologist and an infectious disease doctor. We already have been told to vaccinate. We've been told to vaccinate her as soon as possible that children can get the COVID vaccine. Um, thoughts, she said. How can parents best prevent or catch MISC early? Is it likely she caught a future variant of the virus that she caught uh, with this MISC again? What are the pros and cons of the vaccine in this situation? The multi-inflammatory uh, syndrome that can occur after COVID-19 is really a, um, a special immune response to the virus, particularly in response to the spike protein. So unfortunately, this child developed this immune response, which is treatable and should not come back. But I can tell you, the one thing you would never want to do is vaccinate a child like this, because then the child will be forced to produce the spike protein by their own cells. And this could cause a potentially fatal flare of the MISC syndrome. So I strongly disagree with any recommendations to vaccinate a child with MISC. A child like this absolutely positively would have been excluded by the FDA and Pfizer from the clinical trials and there would be no reason to experiment on this child with the vaccine. The child has complete, robust, and durable immunity. Uh, a downside of COVID-19 has been this MISC, but uh, this, will, um, this will wane over time and is treatable, but under no circumstances should this child receive a vaccine. Wow. Molly says, uh, please thank Dr. McCullough for his courage and for so freely sharing his extraordinary expertise. My question, I just spoke to someone yesterday who said her friend has C-19 in 2020 and survived it. She then got two doses of the C-19 vaccine. She got C-19 again, but didn't survive it the second time. Does that mean the C-19 vaccines wiped out her natural immunity? I've heard you mention that C-19 recovered actually has more complications after they get the vaccines. It is true. There's three papers, Rock, uh, Kramer, and Methudius, that show higher side effect rates in those who are COVID recovered who get the vaccine. So one of two scenarios could have happened here. This patient, in fact, may have had real COVID-19 the first time, got the vaccine, and then actually had a vaccine-related death that looked like COVID-19. That's certainly uh, possible. Uh, the second scenario is that the first episode wasn't COVID-19 at all. In fact, it was influenza, and it was misdiagnosed with COVID-19 because we know the PCR tests could have actually falsely diagnosed somebody who had flu as having COVID-19. Then the patient gets the vaccine. Then there's a vaccine breakthrough COVID infection, which is fatal. One of those two things happened. All right, listen to this one from Christy. Her daughter is 18 years old and going into the military. The daughter was forced vaccination to be able to go in and she got it. It's been two weeks now and she had the Pfizer. She's now having chest pains. Please advise what medical treatments can I seek for her? Doctors here are not knowledgeable or responsive. She may have vaccine-induced myocarditis, and this is serious. So I think she should have a prompt evaluation with a physical exam, an EKG, blood test called cardiac troponin, and an ultrasound test of the heart called an echocardiogram. If she has vaccine-induced myocarditis, then she'll need referral to a cardiologist. Likely, she would not be able to continue in the military now for some period of time. 
Uh, she would need uh, medications in likelihood to prevent the development of heart failure, and then serial blood testing and imaging in order to see through resolution of the myocarditis. But any individual who's taken the vaccines and then developed chest pain, please be evaluated for myocarditis. The FDA has official warnings on this. The FDA has told uh, parents and children and others that in fact, this happens and can happen and it's serious. And now in the CDC VAERS report, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, there's over 5,000 cases. Wow. All right, Madeline says, my husband and I both have COVID. We've been on an island trying to navigate our own health care. His doctor said, when you have a hard time breathing, go to the ER. My husband is 76, overweight, sleep apnea. I'm 66, know the health risks. We were able to get him the Regeneron infusion on day eight. He is also now on ZPAC and steroid. All these treatments were initiated after we asked for them. He still has a very bad congested smoker's cough. He is not, you know, she says next, Dr. McGullough, he is not SOB. And I thought she was calling him an SOB, but she's saying that's short of breath. So I don't want to get uh, give Madeline help for calling her husband that. So it really is. He's not short of breath, but unable to take a deep breath or it throws him into coffin fits. Uh, O2 levels uh, always above 95%. I just finished listening to Dr. McCullough, hour and a half speech he gave at a church. Excellent. Is there something else we should be doing? Wondering about an inhaler, hydroxy, and other antibiotics. I can tell Madeline's a healthcare professional, Malcolm, because SOB is our little inside abbreviation of shortness <laughs> of breath. So she must be. In I thought she was calling up a name. I'll tell you, I swear. I thought, what, what kind of a wife is that? Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so she must be a nurse or a healthcare personnel. So uh, that was a giveaway. And I can tell she's really medically sophisticated. So great to get the monoclonal antibody infusions. We like to get them on day one, two, when it's mild, not on day eight, when it's late in the illness. But the cough can be uh, really difficult to deal with. And what I found works. Uh, at this level, since it's already on steroids, which is terrific, is uh, 30 days of colchicine. That'll reduce some of the chest symptoms. Uh, use of Singular or Montelukast, 10 milligrams a day. Uh, and then um, it's very important uh, since blood clots can uh, cause some of those pulmonary symptoms to at this stage, at least be on aspirin, 325 milligrams a day. For cough suppression, uh, certainly one can use um, uh, Tessalon pearls or Robitussin AC, but it's going to be a little bundle of drugs. Expect this cough to continue for about a full month. Okay. All right. Now, uh, Caitlin says this message is regarding the Regeneron infusion. I'm a healthcare worker. And since the government took over the order and we can't keep it in stock anymore, therefore the local hospitals are getting stricter on who they give it to when the restrictions have been loosened uh, had been loosened quite a bit pre previously. Uh, we're struggling here in Eastern Kentucky trying to save lives. What can we do? Who can we contact when we, when we, where we have positive friends and family to receive this infusion? We can drive, no problem. Thank you for all you do. You are a hero. All right, so I'm hearing this question from other circles, Dr. McCullough, that the Regeneron product is running short and now, and I'm actually hearing reports, I, and I don't know how true this is, that it's being intentionally, again, you tell me, it's being intentionally um, uh, kept away or, uh, you know, not provided that there's some intentionality to this, uh, the availability of it. But here's a healthcare worker saying in Kentucky, they can't get enough of it now. They're running short. Do you know about it? Well, I've had conversations with lawmakers in Florida and in Alabama, and I'm hearing the same thing. 
that uh, despite 500 million pre-purchased doses of these antibodies, that there's uh, now distribution issues with them. So I encourage everybody to be on alert, contact their Department of Health and Human Services at the state level, uh, demand uh, a 1-800 number and a listing of which centers are stocking the monoclonal antibodies and what their hours of infusion are. Clearly high risk seniors over age 65 on day one should get a monoclonal antibody infusion, just like former President Trump and Governor Abbott here in Texas, podcaster Joe Rogan. They're great examples of how well you can do on day one. Please don't wait uh, days into the illness. So uh, uh, push your Department of Health and Human Services to be transparent on where these monoclonal antibodies are. One of the words we've used to, uh, to characterize government actions throughout the pandemic is malfeasance. That's wrongdoing by those in position of authority. And so this is another example of taking something that really works, high-tech operation warp speed, monoclonal antibodies, Regeneron, which is a combination of carisivimab and indomivab. These monoclonal antibodies really work, but the malfeasance is that our government is not making them available to the public and not making them easy to access. Okay. Uh, Joe says, would Dr. McCullough know how the Novax is coming along and will it be safe? Novavax, I'm very high on. This is a vaccine by a U.S. company called Novavax. It is uh, five micrograms of the purified spike protein in a matrix. Uh, this looks very safe, even though the arm was quite sore in the clinical trials. It looked every bit as good as Pfizer and Moderna in protecting against the legacy Variants. We don't know how it'll do against Delta. It's been held up to the fourth quarter of this year for commercial release because of manufacturing issues. Um, I can tell you, uh, Operation Warp Speed, with all of its money, should be able to help Novavax overcome any manufacturing issues and bring this important vaccine to market. I think if Novavax comes to market and holds up against Delta, I think that's going to spell the end to Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson Johnson. Do we know when that's happening? Fourth quarter, 2021. Okay. All right. So soon enough, that's got, well, probably not soon enough for some, but uh, all right. Chris says, can Dr. McCullough recommend how he would treat a two-month-old boy running a uh, 101.5 temperature tested positive for COVID? He's in the hospital. Should I say no to remdesivir or, or, or because of the, the options of his age? Uh, of course, that's what the hospitals recommend. And as they all do, they use this remdesivir, but this is a two-month-old running a high fever. What do you think? Well, a sick child like that in the hospital is really outside of the scope of my practice. I would defer to pediatricians, but I can tell you the drugs that are safe in children include uh, Tylenol, which we need for fever control. We want to control the fever in children uh, primarily because fevers can actually trigger a seizure. And so we want to do that. Um, we know that uh, hydroxychloroquine in pediatric dosing is um, safe. We know that azithromycin is safe. We know that inhaled budesonide is safe, as well as uh, weight-adjusted and pediatric doses of corticosteroids are safe. So I think there is an array of things that can be done to get the child through the illness. Uh, antivirals probably won't be as effective as simply fever control and some uh, corticosteroids and drugs to kind of reduce the systemic effects of the virus. Okay. And uh, Betty says, my 53-year-old brother in Houston started having COVID symptoms 
Uh, he was able to get hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin from a friend who had an ample supply for his family. I believe he received some steroids and budesonide uh, as well. His oximeter readings went down to 80, uh, and then he was taken to the ER. He asked for the monoclonal antibodies, but they said it would be of no benefit to him. When they got him in a room the following day, he was diagnosed with COVID pneumonia. Apparently, they are not giving him any antibiotics, no monoclonal antibodies, no vitamin C infusions. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and he is on a um, Vapotherm oxygen machine, is it? Vapotherm uh, oxygen machine. Over the course of the last week, his pressures went from 30 to 25 and oxygen output went down from 100 to 70. I'm not sure exactly what these numbers mean, but they indicated that both are an improvement. They have continued to insist that he needs to be on remdesivir, but he has refused because of having learned of the high incidence of kidney failure and death. I'm wondering if we need to get him discharged and sent home with oxygen, antibiotics, and a prescription of vitamin C infusions. Can you help? Yeah, these are difficult cases. It's what we call therapeutic nihilism. People, uh, he was getting a pretty good treatment as an outpatient. Then he goes to the inpatient and everything's uh, stripped yeah. away. Uh, the first point is, uh, and this is mainly for others to learn, when he's in the ER, that's the time to demand the monoclonal antibody infusion. Do not allow the admission until he gets the monoclonal antibody infusion. As soon as they click him over to an admitted patient, then he's no longer eligible. For you have to be an outpatient, you're saying, to get that, right? Right. And so just the designation in the right. computer as being an in inpatient takes that away. And by the way, that is so artificial. That doesn't need to happen. There's no scientific rationale about why an antibody infusion can't be given to an inpatient versus an outpatient. It's still the same patient. It's still the same disease. What bed they're sitting in simply doesn't matter. Most of the time, it's what their indication is on a computer screen. That should not indicate a medical decision to receive a monoclonal antibody. So again, for the next person to learn, demand the monoclonal antibody uh, in the ER. I recently lost a patient like that uh, in the hospital, and they clicked him over to an admission. Then he's no longer eligible for the monoclonal antibody which was absolutely, it, it took away a treatment option from him. But ideally people in the hospital would be continued all the drugs they're receiving as an outpatient, and then they can get a step up in care with more oxygenation. So ideally ivermectin would be continued. Ideally uh, corticosteroids, azithromycin, colchicine, aspirin. We could add anoxaparin in the hospital. And then there would be a step up in care instead of a step down. So I understand your frustrations. You're going to simply have to work with the doctors when at a safe level can get discharged to home and then get higher quality care at home. All right. Uh, here's one that we're, we're getting a lot of questions still on. People are not understanding. And uh, Kathy says, I heard Dr. McCullough say that once you've had COVID-19, you cannot get it again. Does that include, oh, well, does that include all variants, Delta, et cetera? Uh, does he feel this is lifelong immunity? Uh, so there, okay, so that's a different uh, spin on the question. What about different variants? I think you should think about it this way. If it was possible to get COVID over and over again with new variants, we would have seen millions and millions and millions of people in the hospital. The variants would have swept through the U.S. nursing homes over and over and over again, because we know that's who get hospitalized as seniors. In fact, that's not the case. We heard about nursing homes being swept last year with COVID-19, and in it has, Delta has not swept through again. And, and so the bottom line is, the best that we can tell is that immunity to the virus confers immunity against all the variants. The variants, by the way, are fairly minor changes in the spike protein. The natural immunity is against the nucleocapsid, the envelope protein, uh, the polymerase, and other components of the virus. So the natural immunity is quite robust. Um, I can tell you personally, 
I, I had the British variant, the Alpha variant in October of 2020. I've been directly challenged with really sick Delta patients right in my face, no mask, no protection. I, I couldn't get it. So I honestly, that's my own personal experience. But looking at the data, I think the immunity is robust. If it wasn't, it, it, honestly, if we don't have durable immunity to COVID-19, we're going to have a 200-year epidemic. This is going to keep going over and over again. So I got to tell you, America, we better bet on durable immunity after the natural infection. Yeah. And it appears people are just uncomfortable with this because they're being sick in other ways and maybe they get sick a second time and they blame it on COVID. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, bad information here as well uh, that it's not really COVID. Uh, on those. I know because it happened to me uh, where I thought I had it and obviously didn't. And when I did get it, I darn well knew I had it for sure. Um, you know, this remdesivir business, I want to ask you something, Dr. McCullough. Someone's asking a question here, but I, I want to go further with it. They're saying, I, I recently heard on a on a different anti-COVID vaccine website, the video alleged that remdesivir is actually lethal. It's the only drug use is treated in the hospitals and it was causing deaths. Uh, do you agree with that? Now, I, I don't, but their question is, is it causing deaths and is it lethal? What I want to ask you on top of that is, why are the hospitals still using remdesivir when it's been noted that the damage it's doing to kidneys and livers and, and what have you? Remdesivir is an intravenous polymerase inhibitor drug. It failed in the uh, Ebola pandemic. Its um, intellectual property rights actually go back to China. And so remdesivir was one of the earliest offered drugs and its data are mixed primarily because it's simply, it's simply used too late in the illness. If remdesivir was used on day one, it may actually have wonderful effects. But if it's used on day 14, when the average person comes to the hospital, it's too late for it to have an effect. And unfortunately, remdesivir does have liver and kidney toxicity. So I'm not against remdesivir. It does, the data, like I say, are very mixed. If the doctors in the hospital think the kidneys and liver can tolerate remdesivir, I'm certainly not against it. Um, but I wouldn't bank on having good outcomes with it. Uh, it's given over five days of infusion. It's rare that someone can tolerate five days because of the liver and kidney toxicity. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Diana says, I appreciate all you're doing and sharing with all of us. I listen to your programs and follow you on uh, Telegram and interviews that you've given such a wealth of information. Our son is studying at Baylor and is in his junior year. He has wanted to be an anesthesiologist, but is running into difficulties when searching out internships since most hospitals require the COVID shots. He is a young and healthy, and we are really concerned he might be forced into this. And it just boggles my mind uh, where there are young people that want to help. W would you have any suggestions for someone looking to do the internship under these conditions we find ourselves in today? Uh, we appreciate your courage and boldness. God bless. And, you know, this goes back to the healthcare system and what's happening, Dr. McCullough. Now you have young people like Diana's uh, son. And, you know, this is going to push a lot of people away from healthcare, isn't it? It's true. I mean, no one wants these vaccines at this point in time because they about 12% of Americans have actually know somebody or know somebody in their circles who's died of the vaccine. So there's not a single person who wants to take the vaccine and lose their life over it. He'll never become an anesthesiologist if, heaven forbid, he died of the vaccine. So because the vaccine has lethal side effects and has injured more than 600,000 Americans, you can imagine the reluctance uh, to do this. So um, what I can advise is that um, that there are always religious and medical exemptions that will be fully applied for, and they should be disputed if they're not accepted. Uh, one should never have to accept something in their body against their will that violates 
uh, almost every uh, ethical and religious directive that I'm aware of across all different religions and denominations, uh, and that should be respected. Uh, that can always be supported and challenged by Liberty Council, which helps students like him every day. Uh, in Texas, we have an executive order in April that says our Texas state institutions cannot discriminate or mandate according to the vaccine. So in the Texas system, we should be in good shape in terms of the uh, the medical schools. The problem is the hospitals, many of them are not state run. And so the hospitals are private and they have started the ill-advised and unwanted vaccine mandates. And one of the data points to point out is a paper by Keener and colleagues, New England Journal of Medicine recently showing the University of California at San Diego has more Delta infections in the vaccinated workers compared to the unvaccinated workers. So a vaccine mandate in hospitals and health systems, which never had problems before with COVID-19, is backfiring and ill-advised. Okay, and the final question, Dr. McCullough from Brandon uh, says, Malcolm, I have a question for Dr. Peter McCullough to air on the Q&A series. How long does COVID take to enter the main body after entering via the nose mouth? I could have sworn I heard that it rests in the nose mouth for a day or two. This would allow us the opportunity to kill it via your betadine, uh, other hygiene methods. Um, uh, also, do you have a guide on how COVID infects the body? Thank you for all what you are doing for this life-saving information. There is a pre-symptomatic phase, and to my knowledge, it's more like three to four days. And you're right, that's an opportunity for the betadine to work, and that's the reason why it did in the paper by Chowdhury and colleagues. And uh, in fact, there are multiple supportive papers for this, and that's what anti-infective dentist Paul Gossett out of Chicago really emphasized, that it really does work. We use it now in prevention and in treatment. We've been using it in Singapore and Asia. You know, there's huge cities in the United States, Hong Kong, Singapore, and others, you never hear about them wiped out with COVID-19. Why? Because they've learned these important oral and nasal hygiene programs. So I really love that comment, and I'm happy to give that response. I, I'm really high on this. We were late to the game on recommending uh, oral and nasal hygiene approaches to COVID-19, but this pre-symptomatic phase is probably about three to four days. You can't spread it during this time. Remember, the spread only occurs once the fever and the nasal congestion starts, but people do have it in their nose and mouth. And our CDC director has said that. She's come on the television and said, listen, it's been proven now, the vaccinated carry the Delta variant in their nose and mouth in the pre-symptomatic phase. So again, this hygiene ought to be applied to both vaccinated and unvaccinated. Okay, thank you, Dr. McCullough. And remind everybody again, educational purposes, all the answers and questions here. Uh, you know, we know each situation is, is um, very personal and very specific. And you need to get uh, really that uh, close attention from your own physician uh, in your areas. We're happy to help you and do everything we can to give these answers. But in many cases, they're very broad in nature. So it's important to, uh, to mention that. We're working on getting more resources on the platform. We know many have so many questions and trying to do our very best. We can't thank Dr. McCullough enough uh, with all of his travels for taking the time. And there are so many requests for these Q and A's. We have thousands of questions. We simply can't get to them all. Uh, and some of them, many of them are repeats. So hopefully you hear your question answered as well. Uh, thank you again, my friends, for being on the mission here. It's time to get involved and get loud. <laughs>